Sorry about that. Yes, thank you. A good point. Um, that makes it slightly more awkward to me. I will. I need to be able to see my slides, so I'll, I'll talk from here if I may. Yes, fine. Thank you. So let me just start thank with thank you um, for uh, that point. Okay, so let me just um, start with um, what, a couple of ref- general um, slides on um, science. So. Um, a classical thought experiment, actually, of Galileo was dropping two balls from the Leaning Tower of Pisa. There's a little joke here. It says if there were computers in Galileo's time, and it shows him dropping two computers from um, the um, Leaning Tower of Pisa. Uh, but he drops a wooden ball and a metal ball from the top of the par, Tower of Pisa, and the question is, how long do they take to fall to the ground? Now, um, in high school, uh, where I went to the A-levels in England, A simple calculation which I could have done in high school, um, just taking into account Earth's gravity and Newton's laws, can be done with pen and paper and gives you an answer. But if you want more detailed answers, uh, there are a number of other effects which would play a role. Um, Air resistance, a big role. The rotation of the Earth. Tidal effects from the sun and the moon, probably extremely small, but they would still be there. Variations in the gravity of Earth due to mountains and so forth. Um, even more exotic effects like general relativity um, and so forth. All of these will have tiny effects on your answer. And the outcome is it is not possible to get a final definite answer. Some smaller effects always have to be neglected. So the way science works is you start with the big effects, then you go down to the smaller effects. You have to make some kind of judgment as to which effects, which of the smaller effects you um, should take account of and which you haven't. And so what I've, the outcome, the sort of byline of this is science works in answer to any practical problem by successive approximations. Um, another brief remark is on causes. So let me tell you um, a story. Um, you come back um, after an absence in your house and you find a vase that was on the table has fallen over and broken. Um, this is the sort of cause we see in everyday life. So perhaps it was a cat, perhaps it was a toddler, but if there was also an earthquake, you probably wouldn't bother thinking about the cat and the toddler. You, you, so once we've decided on one cause, like the cat, we don't then think, well, maybe the toddler also did it, or maybe the earthquake also did it. So we look for just one cause. But there are other things that we meet in, in everyday life where looking for one cause is not necessarily the right way of doing it. 
And here's an example. You own a shop and profits are down. Now, it might just be for what, due to one factor. But quite likely, it's a combination of several effects. Um, the economy, the rent you're paying, the salaries you're paying, changes in what customers want and competition. And it might just be that one of these is the dominant cause, but it might be that several of these factors are occurring together and you have to take account of them. And it would be a mistake to say, well, because the rent went up, I don't need to think about any of the other causes. There, might be, there may be multiple causes of this effect. And in the, in the case of um, the climate of the Earth, we're much more in the second case where there are multiple effects going on rather than just one effect like the broken vase. So, and another point is, you're in a shop, the same effect that is profits down at different times may have different causes. When profits went down in 2000, it might be because of a recession. Now profits are down again. It might not be a recession. It might be because of competition from the internet. And so you mustn't think that because of a particular cause in one time having this, this effect, therefore um, th there is no, you should never look at any other um, possible cause at other times. Now, on to the science. The Earth's climate, by which we mean the average weather, is a very complicated system, and it's influenced by many factors. Obviously, heat from the sun, the Earth's atmosphere, as we'll be um, saying, talking about in a bit, um, changes in the Earth's orbit around the sun, distributing the um, t times when you get more, slightly more, slightly less heat from the sun, and over long geological periods of time, changes in the position of continents. All of these are believed to have effects on Earth's climate. And the climate has varied considerably over the last 65 million years. So here, I hope you can see it reasonably well, is an approximate picture. I mean, there's always going to be, with these graphs and people trying to work out what the climate is in the past, there's always going to be some sort of uncertainty. But roughly speaking, what we see is 65 million years ago, the climate was a lot hotter than it is today. The climate today... Um, zero on this picture is, is, is about there. This is, um, in this period, the climate was perhaps eight degrees, ten degrees higher than it is now. Then um, there was a period about 35 minutes ago when An Antarctica um, became glaciated. There was a warmer period. Then over the last 20 million years, the climate has been gradually getting, over a very long scale, been getting um, colder with just down here, a lot of recent oscillations. And we'll move on to the last five million years to look at that. And this is five millions of climate change from sediment cores. The left-hand and right-hand degree here, these are two-degree um, intervals. And we see a gradual cooling of the climate with actually increasing um, oscillations. There was a period of 41,000-year cycles and then more recently a period of 100,000-year cycles. And there's a lot of evidence um, uh, and well, consistent theories that these long cycles are due to the changes in the Earth's um, orbit around the Sun. Um, and I won't go into that unless people ask me later. So that's the last 5.5 million years. And here's now blown up again the last 500,000 years. And we're in a period which globally um, people in climate would call ice ages. We have ice ages with interglacials. These are the interglacials here, which are rather short, sharp peaks. And basically, we're in an interglacial now. If we didn't do anything, in a few more thousand years, the Earth will get cooler again. And in perhaps um, 
10 or 15,000 years, um, we'd be back to having ice sheets across um, the North American continent and the temperatures would be 6 degrees um, cooler than they are now. So that's what's been going on. These regular, fairly regular oscillations, 41,000 um, year, no, 100,000 year cycles over the last um, half million years or so. And these are temperatures actually from ice cores in um, uh, Antarctica. And here now is the um, temperature for the last um, uh, 2,000 years. Now here, the scale on the left is 0.2 degrees, so there's a lot more uncertainty in these. Um, because we're looking at things at a much finer scale, there's more uncertainty here. These are various different reconstructions. They tell somewhat different stories, but broadly the same. Um, there was a warmish period about 1,000 years ago. Zero on the scale is sort of temperature now. It might have been warmer 1,000 years ago than now. Um, it was about as warm. Then the climate got cooler. There was what's called the Little Ice Age, about 1600, when the Thames, for example, froze um, on a number of occasions. And then more recently, we've had um, a rapid rise in temperature, and 2004 is that little asterisk there. Um, and as I said, there's some controversy about exactly um, the scale of these things, but this is the general picture. And here now is the, what people call the instrument, instru instrumental period, that is when we actually started measuring temperature with thermometers and things. Mm -hmm. Starting with 1850, the grey, which you may not be able to see very well, is the um, uncertainty. So basically we see a sort of roughly constant period up to 1900, a rise from 1900 to 1940, a flattish period from 1940 to 1970, a sharp rise from 1970 to 2000, and then um, not very much change since about 2000. So that's the, what's been going on over the last um, 150 years. So the recent temperature rise. Now, when Galileo did his um, thought experiment with um, dropping balls from the Tower of Pisa, one of the reasons was to criticise the um, dominant theory of how bodies behave when they fall, which was um, the Aristotelian theory. So when we're looking at the cause of something, we should start by looking at what the established scientific theory is. We should see if it makes sense. Um, we should see to the extent to which it, it can be, should be criticised. And then if it is defective, we may then need to look at alternatives. And the standard theory held um, is that this recent temperature rise is due mainly to carbon dioxide emissions by human activity. And that goes under the grand title of anthropogenic, which means due to human beings, climate change, and or global warming. And the theory rests on three pillars. So the first pillar is a scientific theory based on well-established, in fact, 19th century physics, of how gases in the atmosphere absorb and emit radiation. The second pillar is that CO2, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, are rising due to human activity. 80% of this is due to burning fossil fuels and 20% due to deforestation. And the third pillar is that temperatures are actually increasing at about the level predicted given the science and the change in the carbon dioxide. So those are the three pillars. Now, if one of them were missing, then the theory would be on extremely um, shaky ground. Um, it really needs all of these three pillars to, um, to hold it up. So let's go through and look in more detail at the three pillars. And I'm going to, because one is most complicated, I'm going to start um, with number three and work backwards um, uh, in, in my list. 
So temperatures are increasing. The picture fairly, fairly uh, clearly shows it. They're not rising on a year-to-year basis or even a decade-to-decade decade basis. There's a pretty flat period from 1940 <laughs> to 1970. But if you look at periods of 50 years or more, you can see a clear um, upward increase. Um, I don't think it's um, easy to argue that temperatures are not increasing. Next, let's go on to carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. So, um, modern measurements start in about 1960, when a physicist called Keeling, um, with a very accurate um, carbon dioxide measurer, installed it on a high mountain, Mauna Loa, in Hawaii. And um, he was quite surprised to find um, these little oscillations every year, um, which is due to vegetation growing in the northern hemisphere, absorbing a bit of carbon dioxide. Um, so the carbon dioxide is at minimum in October, and then it rises again um, in the winter. But as well as this annual up-and-down oscillation, there is a steady rise in carbon dioxide after about two parts per million um, every year, and you know there are sort of little wobbles in the curve, but um, it's going up and up. Um, that my my data here ends in about mid two thousand and um, eight or something. Uh, it's now just about at three ninety. Um, actually, it's now it, the temperature is now just under four hundred. Hello. Gary, do you want questions now, or do you want to wait until later? Um, well, uh, I'm not sure. Um, depends what your question is. Okay, I want to go back to the previous slide, and I just wondered if you could uh, explain the temperatures that are being measured there. Is that a composite of air and water, or just air, or what? I believe these are surface temp- temperatures on the... I mean, it's Earth and ocean. This is the average temperature over the whole of the Earth. Earth and ocean. Yes. Okay, so temperatures are now, so carbon dioxide is now up to about 400. Um, it's a little bit under 400. Um, due to this annual oscillation, um, it'll stay under 400. It, it was over 400, I think, earlier this year. It's now under 400. It will go over 400. And in a year or two, it will go over 400 and stay there for the rest of our lives and our grandchildren's lives. We can calculate. Now, what's the cause of this rise in carbon dioxide? Well, we can calculate from economic data um, how much fossil fuels are being burnt each year and how much carbon dioxide is going into the atmosphere from that. We can also estimate how much is being added by other human activities, the main one being deforestation. If all this carbon dioxide went into the atmosphere, concentrate, concentration would rise by about four parts per million a year, while the current actual increase is more like two. And the difference is probably due to absorption of carbon dioxide by the oceans, and this cause is actually causes another problem, most ocean acidification, which I'm not going to say anything about. But the oceans are actually getting more acidic. And when I prepared this talk, I did some calculations, and I was actually surprised to find out how much carbon dioxide by weight we add by our daily activities. Annual emissions per Canada, per capita emissions in Canada, 14.6 tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. And you say, good heavens, can I really possibly be admitting, how can I possibly be admitting 14 tonnes of carbon dioxide a year? When I fill my car, I add about 50 litres of fuel. It comes out in a hose, so I don't actually realise how heavy it is. That fuel weighs 35 kilograms, so I'd have trouble carrying it. If you've ever carried a fuel can, you realise fuel is heavy. On combustion, this adds 115 kilograms of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So every time I 
fill up my car, basically I'm adding a tenth of a tonne of carbon dioxide um, to the atmosphere. And that's, I was surprised actually how much that, that was. 30 people in this room will breathe out about 1.2 kilogram of carbon dioxide in an hour. I did that calculation just for um, interest's sake. Um, but you don't need to feel guilty about that. The carbon dioxide in this um, uh, the carbon in this carbon dioxide will have come from food that you've been eating, the snacks and so forth that we had earlier, and hence ultimately from the atmosphere of our plants. So, um, you know, you, you don't need to worry about your own personal breathing in and out. <laughs> and here's um, an estimate for what's been going on in the last 300 years. These, this data here would be from ice cores and things like that. Roughly a level of between 250 and 280 in the periods up to um, uh, 1750, and then a gradual rise due to the um, human activity, um, fossil fuel burning, and then a much more rapid rise in the um, post-1950 period. And the black curve here would be the um, uh, actual measurements due to Mauna Loa, and then the thin black line here is ice core data. And in the 6th of August, it was up to 397.88 um, parts per million. As I said, it will go over um, 400 um, uh, in, a, in a year or so, and, and will, won't come down again. So finally, so I've discussed briefly the first two pillars, that is actual temperature rises, actual carbon dioxide rises, um, and finally, now I want to talk about the most difficult thing, which is the science of atmosphere and radiation. And this requires um, some sort of physics, which I learned at, at A-level, um, uh, uh, and probably people in North American universities would learn in first or second year physics classes. And I can't give you... Um, I can't say too much about this, but I have to say a bit. So all matter emits energy in the form of radiation. We are emitting infrared radiation. The hotter a body the shorter the wavelength. And the sun, which is at 6,000 degrees centigrade, emits most of its radiation in the visible part of the spectrum. Bodies at our temperature, well, at the sort of general temperature of the Earth, emit most of their radiation in the infrared. We can see um, through the atmosphere, and that means that the atmosphere is not absorbing um, radiation in the um, visible part of the spectrum. So the Earth's atmosphere is largely transparent to radiation in the visible spectrum. So the sun's radiation in the visible spectrum comes in. Some of it gets absorbed, but a lot of it reaches the Earth's surface. This warms up the Earth's surface. And this radiation, then the Earth's surface re-emits that, that radiation in the infrared. And some of the infrared radiation is then absorbed by the atmosphere, reflected back to Earth, um, warming it up. So we have an extremely complicated picture here showing what's going on in terms of global energy flows in watts per meter. So, uh, I hope you can see my little pointer. 341 watts per square meter comes in from the sun. There are lots of flows here. Some of it gets directly reflected back by the atmosphere and clouds. Some of it comes to the earth and warms up the earth. Let's miss out some of the complications here. There's a big radiation by the earth going up into the atmosphere... Some of this then gets reflected by the atmosphere in various ways down again. And in fact, if you look, 161 watts per meter is coming by direct radiation. 333 is coming by indirect radiation. So indirect radiation is actually a lot bigger than direct radiation. Then 
Um, but some of the radiation from the atmosphere then gets um, emitted out um, and finally disappears um, uh, into space. And then there are various other effects due to clouds and evaporation and so forth, which I'm not going to um, go into. Uh, this slide here gives a net absorption by the Earth of about 0.9 watts per square metre. In other words, these flows are not completely imbalanced. There's a net absorption of radiation by the Earth here, according to the slide, and that would mean that the Earth somehow or other is going to get warmer, just as if you turn on the um, electric um, on, um, heater on your stove and start warming up the water in it. Heat is going into that water, and it's going to um, warm it up. So these are the... And the basic idea... Okay, let me go on to the next slide. Okay, even more complicated. <laughs> this shows the, um, the spectrum. Here's um, infrared radiation, which is heat, the sort of thing we call heat radiation. Here's a visible spectrum. Most of the visible spectrum is not absorbed by the atmosphere. Quite a lot of the infrared radiation is absorbed by the atmosphere. And here, on this part of the slide, let's go down to the bottom. What this little grey peak here means is that radiation of this um, frequency in the infrared is largely absorbed by carbon dioxide. There are some other little peaks here due to carbon dioxide too. Water vapour... Um, is also absorbs radiation and, in fact, absorbs much more radiation in, or in many more different frequencies than carbon dioxide. So what happens with the water vapour or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is it absorbs the radiation, then re-emits it. Half of it, roughly speaking, goes upwards and half of it comes downwards. So if, you, if there wasn't any there, all the radiation would escape. With some of it there... Some radiation goes up and some goes down. The radiation goes down, will then get re-emitted, but the net effect is a slight warming in the um, Earth's, um, on, on the Earth. Overall, I mean, the Earth is warmer from the Moon. Due to the atmosphere, the Earth is about 30 degrees centigrade warmer from the Moon. Um, they're essentially the same distance in the Sun. Now... It's not an easy calculation, but it's not really tremendously complicated. And it's been known how since the 19th century. So it's the sort of calculation you can do um, with pen and paper and log tables and uh, many, many hours of work. Um, how to calculate how changes in gas concentrations affect the amount of energy emitted by the Earth. And what we find is oxygen and nitrogen, the main com components of the atmosphere, are not um, involved in this. It's only atoms actually with more than three molecules with more than three atoms which um, seem to which, which are involved in this. And there are three main players. Carbon dioxide CO2, methane um, carbon with four hydrogens and water vapour H2O. Increasing the concentration of these, according to the standard theory, will increase the radiation reflected back to the Earth by the atmosphere and so warm the Earth. So that's the basic theory. Now of these three uh, gases, water vapour has the greatest effect, then methane, then carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is the least important of the three main players. However, in thinking about the act, act, human activity, we also need to know how long additional gas put into the atmosphere will stay there. Water vapour doesn't last very long. It condenses out in clouds in a few hours to a few days. Methane lasts about eight years before it breaks up into water and carbon dioxide. 
carbon dioxide takes a few hundred years for some of it to be absorbed by oceans and tens of thousands of years for the, the big effect which causes carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to become, go into equilibrium, which is it reacts with rocks to form carbonates. So ultimately the Earth has correction mechanisms in place which re- tend to return gas concentrations to equilibrium values. For methane, it doesn't take very long, but for carbon dioxide it takes thousands of years. So carbon dioxide is not the most important greenhouse gas because of its effect, but because of the time that it stays in the atmosphere. (coughs) Now, let's talk about water vapour a bit. In terms of effect, this is the most important greenhouse gas. But over a timescale of decades, it works as what people would call a feedback, not as a forcing term. Um, So if we have a complicated system like the atmosphere... A forcing term changes the behavior of the system, and a feedback term reacts to the forcing, but does not cause long-term change. So I tried to think of a a, a sort of everyday example of um, uh, this, and I came up with the following story, which is not completely plausible, but let me tell it to you anyway. So imagine that you're the owner of a restaurant, you've you've bought a restaurant, there's a chef there, Uh, and the you go to the chef and you say, well, there aren't very many customers in the restaurant. And the chef says, yeah, well, um, you know, what we really... The point is that uh, people come into the restaurant when they see other people in the restaurant. What we need to do is to hire a bunch of actors, get them into the restaurant, make them look as if they're enjoying themselves, and then we'll get lots of customers. So you do what the chef says, you hire a bunch of actors, um, you get people coming into the restaurant, but the food is lousy, and... Uh, Once the actors have gone, the people go, and you're back to where you were. So the actors and the crowdedness of the restaurant is acting as a feedback term, and the food quality is the forcing term. So you sack the chef, whose only idea of improving the restaurant is to hire actors, and you you, um, get another chef who actually can cook well. And uh, initially there aren't so many customers, but... People find the food is good and they come. And because people see the restaurant um, uh, has got customers in it, you get more people coming. So the food quality here is the forcing term and the number of customers in the restaurant is the feedback term. And that's, so that's my restaurant story. And basically the idea of water vapor in the atmosphere is the same. It reacts to temperature. When the earth gets warmer, water vapor increases um, and that makes the earth's temperature increase more. When the, earth gets, when the atmosphere gets cooler, um, the opposite effect occurs. But one of the major uncertainties in the science of climate change is the role, overall role of water vapour on clouds. So after my story, um, we want to talk about feedback. And as I was saying, this is one of the major uncertainties in the current science. There are various feedback effects, not just water vapour, but Um, let's keep things simple and just think about water vapour. Now, according to the radiation calculations based on, (coughs) which, um, as I said, based on 19th century science, people, as a handy figure, think about the effect of doubling carbon dioxide. Doubling carbon dioxide without feedback would lead to roughly a 1 centigrade temperature rise. But, when the atmosphere gets warmer, it can hold more, more water vapour, more water evaporates from oceans and so forth. 
And so the amount of water vapour in the atmosphere will increase. That means that more greenhouse gases, water vapour is a greenhouse gas that absorbs more radiation, reflects more radiation back to the Earth. That leads to um, a further, maybe 0.7 degrees centigrade temperature rise. Temperature rises more, but that further temperature rise increases, causes the water vapour to increase more. So that leads now to a 0.7 times 0.7, which is a 0.49 degree rise, and so it goes on. Well, um, fortunately, the, um, the, the overall effect of this is not the temperature goes up indefinitely, but ultimately, in this simple example, we get a 3.33 degrees centigrade rise. So because of the feedback effect of um, uh, a 0.7 degree rise for every 1 degree rise, this then goes on and gives us ultimately um, a 3.3 degrees centigrade rise. Now, if the feedback factor were 1 instead of 0.7, then we get the 1 degree rise and we get another 1 degree rise and we get another 1 degree rise, and so it will go on. And people will call that a runaway greenhouse effect. Um, that is what's believed to have happened to Venus a billion years or, or, so, or so ago. Um, but the good news is um, it won't happen um, on Earth, at least not for um, several hundred million years. <coughs> now, here's the summary, therefore. More carbon dioxide, methane and other gases, lead to the Earth radiating less heat out into space. The Earth is in, here's another key term, perhaps, is in radiative imbalance. In other words, more radiation or energy coming in than going out, and will then warm up. A warmer Earth will radiate more, and so equilibrium will be restored, but at a higher temperature. So that's the basic theory about what's going on in terms of anthropogenic climate change. How much? So a key number is what people call climate sensitivity, which is the ultimate increase of temperature due to a doubling of carbon dioxide levels from the pre-industrial level of 280 parts per million to um, a, temp a level of 560 parts per million. And <clears throat> climate CO2 now is about 400, it was 280. Levels, according to current economic trends, level will reach 560, doubling around 2075. Mm -hmm. And the, in the various reports of the IPC and other scientific bodies, there have been estimates of climate sensitivity um, over the years. So a 1979 report in the National Academy of Science estimated it to be 1.5 to 4. The first IPC report, 1.5 to 4. The second, that's a misprint, that's the third, I think, 1.5 to 4. The fourth, 2 to 4, to, 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 to four sorry, 4.5, not 5.4. And the fifth one changed it back to 1.5 to 5.4. So this, um, the, has, the story has not changed since 1979. Little change, but also little improvement in accuracy. I think what one would say is the 1979 report, this was a rather wild guess. In fact, they just had two climate models. One gave a rise of two, one gave a rise of four. So they said, well, the uncertainty is probably about 0.5, and, the <laughs> and then they um, gave those two figures. Now people are much more certain about the um, general range, but as you see, there's still a considerable variation between the most optimistic, which would be 1.5 estimates, and the most pessimistic, which would be 4.5. And the uncertainty is due to unclearness about the effect of water vapour, clouds, and various other feedback effects. So 
what I've described so far is um, simple science. If we go back to thinking of Galileo, this is the first stage of things where we do things by calculations which can be done by more or less by, with a calculator and log table and so forth. Much more complicated models called global circulation models try to stimulate Earth's climate, taking into account positions of the continents, clouds, ocean currents, snow cover, etc. So these models are essential if one is to say what is going to happen to climate in a particular area like, um, for example, Vancouver. The disadvantages are that they're too complicated for anybody to understand. Um, <laughs> it's a complicated system, uh, so you know, the, if you've got a complicated system, you may just have to use a model which is too complicated to understand. Let me just say that the basic math in these models is um, the, the, the mathematics of um, fluid, um, fluid dynamics, the way of airflow and so forth. So I met somebody who'd worked as a mathematician for Boeing for many years, and I said... Um, you know, in the old days when they built an aeroplane, they, they needed to know how the very shape of the aeroplane would have effects, so they built wind tunnels. And I said, do you use wind tunnels any longer? No, he said. Um, they're really inconvenient, and we can do it much better by computers. So now they use the, the, the equations of fluid mechanics to project um, how the, you know, the shape of the aeroplane wings are going to have the effect. So this is reliable mathematics. The these equations are complicated. You can't solve them effectively except with a computer. Um, and these global circulation models are actually much more complicated than the aeroplane models because the aeroplane models just have to consider airflow, velocity, and pressure, and so forth, whereas these models have to take into account all these other things. <clears throat> um, here are two projections from these models. One is the Ant Antarctica will warm less than the rest of the Earth. Um, I can't say why it's... It's a bit isolated from the rest of the Earth because it's sort of a continent on its own, surrounded by southern oceans. <clears throat> and on the whole, wet areas will get wetter and dry areas will get drier, um, but also temperature bands or you know, cl climate bands will move, move north. So for Vancouver, it's wet, it will get wetter, but maybe there's also a bit of moving north of, of climate bands, so um, we, we might gain from that. <clears throat> so let's now. So I've given you the standard theory. Let me now give you um, my evaluation. Here, in recap, are the three pillars. And as I would say, all of these three pillars seem very solid to me. <clears throat> um, the scientific theory, um, based on 19th century um, science, I would have liked to have actually gone and done some radiation calculations myself, but um, uh, it was too complicated um, uh, to, to, to do that. Um, there's been a clear actual increase of carbon dioxide due to human activity, and there's been a clear actual increase in temperature in the last 150 years. So, as I said, all these pillars seem very solid to me. However, as you're probably aware, there have been quite a lot of criticisms and objections, and I'm just going to um, briefly address some of those. One is that temperature has not risen much over the last 150 years. The observations are due to the urban heat island effect. The point is, um, one of the oldest temperature records is from Greenwich. Greenwich is a park in London. It was perhaps more or less out in the country in 1850. Um, it's now surrounded by lots of... Well, it's still in a park, but um, uh, there are a um, number of... A lot, lot more houses around it. The idea is cities are getting hotter, the rest of the earth is not getting hotter. I would just say that a number of people have tried to find this, but... There are temperature records 
there are temperature gauges which aren't in cities. People have done the statistics, um, and they find that um, this effect, um, you know, it exists for, 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 for some um, uh, temperature gauges, but it does not explain the rise. Some people say that human carbon dioxide is not rising due to ha- human activity. I think that's completely untenable, given the rise in carbon dioxide and the fact that we have economic data on how much fossil fuel we've, we've, um, we've burnt. People could argue that the radiation calculations have not been done correctly. Um, that seems extremely implausible to me. Um, uh, it's, the physics, although beyond me, is not beyond a whole bunch of people. And um, uh, if, 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 if you could argue that the radiation calculations have not cor- correct, been done correctly, the whole um, theory would um, fall apart and it wouldn't be hard, that hard to show that it was wrong. Um, people have argued that past temperature rise is due to some other cause, that is, the rise that we've seen since 1850. But any such argument has to do two things. It, it has to explain why the conventional theory is invalid and then provide a plausible alternative. So let me give you another of my little um, business stories. You buy a shop, and, um, or you own a shop, and you find that um, starting in January 2014, uh, profits are down by about $550 a month. So you go to the manager of the shop who you're em- em- employing, and you say, hey, why are profits down? Um, and uh, he's hums and haws and talks about the internet and business and so forth. Uh, then you look at the uh, records of the shop and you find that the rent went up by $500 in January. You say, hey, look, the rent went up. Oh, yes, he said, but that's not really the effect. Um, it's, it's, due to, it's due to all these other, th- these other things. So in, in the story that I've got, you have a clear explanation of why your shop is in, is in trouble. If the manager is going to explain it's not due to the rent, he has A, to explain why the rent is not the rent increase is not the cause, and B, he has to provide some other clause. Cause, and any ex, you know, any argument that the past rise is due to some other cause has to do two things: it has to remove the conventional explanation, and it has to provide a plausible alternative. And a final criticism and objection is that there's been no temperature increase over the last 15 years. So, um, here is a picture of the last 50 years. Um, I couldn't get a good picture from the internet, so I just did one in Excel. You see roughly constant climate up to about um, in the 1970s, a rapid rise in the 1990s, and then no obvious increase over the last um, 15 years. So decade by decade, the last decade, temperature has not increased. But nevertheless, if you look at um, the um, broader picture, you do see um, a clear um, increase. The certainly this 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 um, holding was not expected by people in the, in the climate, climate science um, uh, area, and you know there's a debate about what exactly is going on here. Um, as I said, if we look back at the overall figure, we see a clear increase, not from decade to decade, but from over periods of fifty years or so. There was actually a period of. 30 years from 1940 to 1970 when things did not um, uh, increase. And so you can certainly cherry-pick the data and find periods when the climate is, um, uh, when the temperature is not increasing. But if you see a graph which just shows the temperature over the last 15 years and doesn't show you the whole picture, you might guess that the person is trying to mislead you a bit. 
So uh, let me now give you some what I... I've, I've given some criticisms which I think are not reasonable. Here are some more reasonable line of criticism. And that is that the current estimates of climate sensitivity, which I'm going to call CS, are too high. Remember, this is the amount by which temperature in will ultimately increase due to a doubling in carbon dioxide. And the IPC estimate is 1.5 to 4.5 centigrade. Um, the most distinguished academic climate critic, Richard Linson, suggests about 0.6 degrees centigrade. And to do that, he actually requires negative feedback. In other words, um, a rise in temperature causes more clouds. Clouds of the right kind reflect um, radiation back into space. That causes a lower um, increase in temperature. Um, and I would say there's some legitimate room for debate here, but views that the sensitivity are less than about one degree centigrade have little support. There are two diff distinct methods of getting estimates. The first is by scientific models like the global circulation models, so forward models based on the physics. A second method is to look at past climate changes and make statistical estimates based on that. And both lead to figures in this rather wide range of 1.5 to 4.5 degrees centigrade. <coughs> so um, less distinguished than Richard Linsheim, but more local to Vancouver, is um, Patrick Moore, who was actually in Greenpeace and is now um, rather, critical, rather critic of many um, aspects of the ecological movement. And here are some quotes from um, an interview that he gave um, a while ago. And I think it's interesting to see here what a reasonably responsible, uh, but not completely responsible, climate critic has to say, the things that he agrees and the things um, th that he is not saying. There is no dispute over whether CO2 is a greenhouse gas, he says. In other words, the basic radiation theory that I've described, he's agreeing. The fundamental dispute is about water in the atmosphere. A warmer climate will result in a higher level of water in the atmosphere. All of the models used by the IPC assume that this increase in water vapour will result in a positive feedback in the order of three to four times the increase in temperature that will be caused by the increase in CO2 alone. So I think there are two statements in this thing which I've highlighted which are not really supported by the evidence. The first is, um, this is in fact, he's explaining climate sensitivity in layman's language. We've seen the IPC says 1.5 to 4.5. He's saying, they're saying it's three to four. Then the other thing that he says is these models assume that this increase. So he's saying that was put into the models. Now, that's not the case. The calculations of climate sensitivity are something which comes out of the models. Into the models goes basic physics and so forth. The climate sensitivities are not an assumption in the model. They're an output of the model. So as I said, I think he's not being quite straightforward in those two um, statements here. And then the final statement, again, talking about negative feedback. Many scientists do not agree with this. Actually, there aren't that many. Or do not agree that we know enough about the impact of increased water to predict the outcome. I think a lot of people would say that there's a wide var variety. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty, including the IPCC estimates, which are 1.5 to 4.5, which is a very wide um, degree of uncertainty. So if a certain increase in CO2 would theoretically cause a 1 degree centigrade increase in temperature, which is basically um, what the... You know, th this is the increase that actually, um, you know, is the sort of pre-feedback estimate. If there was negative feedback, the temperature would rise would only be 0.5 centigrade. And so he's probably going for the Linson figure of, of a 0.5 or 0.6. Mm -hmm. 
But as I said, there's not a lot of support for such a low, the high level of feedback, negative feedback and such a low deep value of climate sensitivity. So I'm coming to the end of my time. What will happen? So I've talked about science. Now let's just say a little bit about what happened. Um, some people say, well, the world, it will actually be good if the world is warmer. Um, good for who? Climate change will have winners and losers. Canada will probably be a coldish country, will on the whole um, gain. But other countries like Bangladesh, which is uh, hot already and close to sea level, will, will not win. And losers will outnumber winners. And there's a simple reason why losers will outnumber winners. Current patterns of human habitation are adapted to the kind of agriculture that we can have. So if you have um, two regions, um, one region where um, agriculture is working and one region where agriculture is not working, lots of humans will live in the region where agriculture is working and not many will live in the region where agriculture is not working. Climate gets warmer, this region becomes an arid desert and this becomes um, nicely fertile. All the people here have to move there. Um, but uh, that may not be so easy. There may be borders in the way and um, uh, certain sort of inconveniences would attend the um, farmers in Bangladesh moving to northern Saskatchewan. Um, um, uh, there may be obstacles in their path um, uh, to make that um, awkward. So any change from our current situation is going to be uncomfortable for, for some people. Um, so, I mean, there are people like Olaf, I think, who will be able to say much more from that, but here is my brief summary. Two degrees centigrade rise, moderate effects globally, severe impact for some regions. Four degrees, severe impact for many regions, and six degrees, which is the difference between temperature now and in the temperature in the um, ice ages, very severe impact for many regions. The greatest adverse effect will be for already poor countries, which tend to be around the equator and hot. And the sorts of things that people predict are sea level rise, heat waves, droughts in some areas, more severe but fewer tropical storms. So can anything be done? And here I would mention that what we could point to what somebody called a sort of toxic polarization in the debate. And the following statement is to deal with global warming means we have to destroy capitalism and our economy. So now, this is advocated by some people on the right as an example to do nothing. We can't destroy capitalism and our economy. It's advocated by some people on the left in the hope that it will lead us to destroy capitalism. So I don't know what planet these people on the left are if they think that talking about global warming is going to make people abandon capitalism. But um, <laughs> So you can see that both these groups would like us to think that um, in order to deal with global warming, we are going to have to completely change our economy and you know, our, our, our way of life. An alternative view, which I think at least one should um, give serious attention to, is the view that action is costly but affordable. Here is carbon use per, in metric tons per capita. Perhaps not surprisingly, uh, one of the oil-producing countries, Qatar, is at the top. USA and Canada, um, this is a different figure from the one I gave you before. It's a different year, I suppose. Russia, 12. Germany, countries in Europe are approximately as wealthy as USA and Canada, but they have roughly half the um, carbon dioxide emissions. Switzerland, cold in the winter, but surprisingly low. China, emerging um, about the same as Switzerland. India, a poor country, 
um, with a very low per capita emission. Just interesting to see. They correlate roughly with wealth of country, India being the poorest of these countries, but there's a lot of variation. And here are some possible actions that we overall can can take. Um, A carbon tax will act to reduce carbon tax. Somebody I met um, from the Suzuki Foundation party was saying this actually the small carbon tax in BC had in fact already had a significant impact. Move from coal to gas for power power plants. Per unit of energy, gas produces a lot less carbon than coal. Move away from fossil fuels for power generation. And some people in the ecological movement hate nuclear power plants, but I think they're just being... um, Well, there are reasons to be concerned about nuclear power plants, but um, I think we have, compared with the harm that other things do, we have to view that they are probably a good thing. So more nuclear plants. Solar power has become amazingly... has gone down in price by about tenfold over the last decade and is now surprisingly cheap. Wind power... And research into new technologies, I think I misspelled that, such as nuclear power from thorium. So thorium is a radioactive element like uranium, um, but the thorium um, plant would not, could, cannot melt down and it can't be used for bombs. So there's some disadvantages in, advantages in using um, thorium reactors. Some research on that is being done in China and France, none in North America. And the final possible action is what people call geoengineering. Modify Earth's climate to mitigate temperature rise. There are various ideas. Mirrors in space are hopelessly expensive and impractical. But stratospheric sulfur injections, you fire shells containing sulfur into the the upper atmosphere. These reflect radiation away from the Earth. The cost of 20 billion a year in... uh, quoting somebody says, surprisingly affordable compared with other things. Um, there are problems with geo, geoengineering. Um, it doesn't quite restore things to where they were. You get warmer nights, um, and, you know, um, nights will be warmer than they were before. But um, I think that if we're going to do anything at all, all of these things are going to be, have to be um, uh, put on the table. And no... Um, uh, <coughs> Nothing should be sort of ruled out. And I think that's the end of my talk. Yes. Okay.